welcome to another episode of Lost in Science and oh well look we're getting close to the end of the year so we are um, we are entering the silly season if we're not already in a season that is silly and uh, that doesn't mean we're gonna have less quality less of quality science for you on this episode <laughs> definitely not no of course not um, and as evidence of the high quality that we are presenting I have with me Catriona Catriona how are you I'm good, thanks. How are you going? I am fantastic. And what amazing, you know, not lesser science, but greater science have you got for us this week? <laughs> well, this week I thought this cat will talk about cats. Excellent. Appropriate. Um, <laughs> there is so much to say about cats. What, there there what definitely you, is. What are you thinking? So I, I want to talk about how we first domesticated cats as humans and, and how our feline friends came to be our friends. Did we domesticate them? We did. Well, oh. they're, semi, they're semi-domesticated. It's, it's arguable. We'll get into okay, it. <laughs> okay, okay, cool. Oh, well, that's good. You, do you have a cat yourself? I do not. I'm allergic. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Ironically. Well, um, it's good that you're, like, crossing the divide then to talk about them. So you're <laughs> yep. more a dog person then. With that Definitely. Okay, yeah. Okay, fair enough. I mean, they're cute. Um, Cats are cute in videos, but, yeah, just yeah, yeah, okay. too close and I get sneezy. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I have a cat, um, so I will uh, consult her as needed in this <laughs> in this story. Uh, well, me, I am talking about uh, another type of animal um, and a very kind of seasonally appropriate one. I'm talking about Christmas beetles. Are they red and green? <laughs> no, uh, you're not familiar with them. They're those kind of shiny, kind of iridescent beetles mm. that um, are often uh, seen around the, the Christmas period. So they kind of look a bit like Christmas ornaments. But, and they come around at Christmas time, so that's why they have their name. But a lot of people have lately noticed that they're not around as much as they remember them being around in their mm. childhood. Those and cicadas. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I haven't heard them as much lately. I don't know. Well, well, maybe we'll discuss that kind of <laughs> that that sort of thing as well. Um, there could be like related things going on, or different phenomenons, phenomena perhaps as well. Um, but yeah, with the Christmas beetle series actually underway at the moment, a citizen science project from the University of Sydney to try and count Christmas beetles as much as possible and find, get some data on whether they are declining and if so, how much and where where they are appearing as well. So uh, we'll talk about that project and also you know what Christmas beetles are and what may be behind a decline if it is happening. Mm. So, uh, yes, um, a lot uh, to discuss in this week's show. So we better get on with it. Uh, on with the show. are beloved well Chris you've got a cat yourself (laughs) and in fact if the internet is anything to go by I'd say we're obsessed (laughs) but 
when did humans first adopt our feline friends? Um, so a new genetic analysis alongside with archaeological evidence sort of pieces the story together. So the story goes that nearly 10,000 years ago, humans settling in the Fertile Crescent, so areas of the Middle East surrounding the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, um, that's when people started to make that first switch from being hunter-gatherers to farmers. And it's sort of thought that that's when they developed close bonds with Particularly these are rodent-eating cats that conveniently kind of serve as ancient pest control <laughs> in, in these first civilizations. So it would have been growing grains and things mm. and having something to eat the pests. So this is ancient Sumer, ancient Sumer or Sumerian kind of culture that we're talking about here around this area? Yeah, exactly. Because essentially people are going from, you know, that kind of nomadic hunter-gatherer to more of a sedentary kind of lifestyle. And they needed to build larger settlements and for larger settlements and societies in one spot, you kind of need to store food. And as you said, grain is a big thing. Mm. Um, So grain stores were attracting lots of mice. So the solution was cats. Archaeological evidence has previously suggested that um, the domestication process of wild cats started in the Fertile Crescent um, and kind of intensified then in going into Egypt along with cultural worships. (laughs) Um, And and that kind of led to human migration and and trade facilitating the spread of domesticated cats across the world. Um, And so there have been cat remains buried alongside human remains um, in a site dating to around 9,500 years ago, suggesting that... Oh, that's a long time ago. It's a long time ago. So it suggests that humans had already formed that relationship with cats by then. Um, And the earliest remains of suggested tamed cats in Egypt date to the fourth millennium um, BCE and uh, suggest that felines became kind of integral to Egyptian culture, which we kind of know now that, you know, they were worshipped. (laughs) Yeah. So fourth millennium, that's about like 6,000 years or so ago. Yeah. 6,000 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So now I'm kind of adding to this archaeological evidence of, you know, burials, mummification, paintings, things like that. Um, Scientists at the University of Michigan College of Veterinary Medicine have collected and analysed DNA from nearly 2,000 cats in and around the Fertile Crescent area, which is where it was thought that the cats were first domesticated, as well as throughout Europe, Asia and Africa, comparing nearly 200 different genetic markers. So some of the things that they kind of look for in terms of the DNA are um, microsatellites, which are little bits of DNA that mutate very quickly. So they can give us clues about recent cat populations and and how the breeds have sort of developed over the past few hundred years. So that kind of gives us a more recent um, indication. But then another DNA marker that they look at are single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are just single base changes throughout the whole genome. They give us clues about more of the ancient history. So going back to several thousand years ago. And essentially looking at the changes in DNA over, over time, it kind of like you look at the paper and all the data that they've got, and it's kind of like a ripple or dispersal pattern outwards from regions like the Levin and the Nile Valley. Um, wow. So from that fertile crescent. And when looking for populations in Europe, Asia, Africa, like, and looking at the amount of mutations from the kind of ancestral population of cats, they seem to be kind of mixed almost equally to the same degree. 
really suggesting that they've come from the same place and then as they were spread worldwide there's kind of that you know random breed subpopulations as it were because Mm. a single population can have genetic differences because they're just separated geographically so they all sort of developed independently the same amount or degree of, of mutation over time but it suggests that they spread very quickly then if they had the same kind of time of mutation yeah, well, yeah. at least in those places that, that yeah. they look at. And I guess they're kind of closer together. It'd be interesting to see, you know, Australia's further away. <laughs> yeah. So what it would be like, you know, here. Um, although not that they were really in Australia until, what, 200 years ago or a bit over. But you've got like, a, I guess, you know, Eastern Asia and um, areas like that, which are connected, you know, geographically. And so it'd be piece of feasible for them to reach, say, China and Mongolia and those sort of places. Yeah, and cats spread quickly. Mm. (laughs) Maybe not as fast as rabbits, but they are very, very quick at, at, you know, spreading. So as we alluded to, Chris, in the introduction, cats aren't exactly domesticated. They're regarded as semi-domesticated. And that's because if you kind of just set them loose in the wild, they are still very, very likely to hunt vermin and rodents and they'd be able to survive and mate on their own due to their own natural behaviors. Um, And that's kind of like an innate thing. Unlike Mm. dogs and animals that we've either domesticated or we use in agriculture, um, we haven't really changed the behaviors of cats in this whole domestication process. So once again, cats are pretty, pretty special animals. (laughs) Um, And so in terms of their kind of semi-domesticated behavioral sort of state, it's consistent with a weaker amount of, I guess, human-influenced artificial selection. So that's when, you know, we come along and we change things. (laughs) So humans do create artificial selection pressure on particular species like you know if we want certain traits in dogs or cows or or whatever it is but we haven't really done that so much for cats Um, and so even though cats have been domesticated at approximately the same time as other agricultural species like cattle and sheep which is you know between 8,000 to 10,000 years ago cats have still scavenged and they've you know curbed vermin populations and so for the past several thousand years, cats haven't really been transformed drastically in, in their behavior mm. or, you know, their, their form. So that's quite unlike dogs and, and other maybe, I guess, economically important species. I don't know. Is it rude to not call cats economically important? <laughs> well, if they have a value to, um, to pest control, I guess they're economically important, but maybe to a different, indirectly, I guess. Yeah. Or... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. And certainly, I mean, dogs were domesticated from wolves and mm. uh, a dog compared to a wolf is extremely different, whereas, yeah, cats compared to, domestic cats compared to wild cats are quite similar. Mm. Yeah. Um, so it's only really been in the past around 200 years that we've started to do anything or change anything. So now we've, we've started to get cat breeds and we're not just randomly breeding cats anymore. Um, and that's an important thing. Like there's, there is a dis- difference genetically between you know certain cat breeds and then random breed cats that have just sort of mated however they wanted to. <laughs> um, because now what we're doing by choosing breeds and things like that is we're also choosing aesthetic traits, which are encoded genetically. And so now in the past like two centuries, that's now 
starting to put in some selection pressures and we're, you know, manipulating, I guess, the genetics of cats as well. So, um, you know, we're starting to impact some genes, but it's still only likely to be a very, very small portion of their whole genome. Um, but the fact that we haven't messed around too much with cat breeding and, and artificial selection and all that means that it, it's actually quite easy to dissect cat population origins and domestication and that whole story um, based on their DNA because we haven't influenced it too much. It's, it's mostly been quite natural shifts. So it's a natural rate of mutation, essentially, rather than these artificial yeah. Yeah, processes that, that have happened in domesticated species. Yeah. And yeah. speaking of other domesticated species, um, horses and cows have seen sort of various domestication events caused by people in different parts of the world at different times. Um, so people in different places realised, oh, horses are useful or cows are useful. But in, in this analysis of cat genetics, it strongly supports the, the theory or the idea that cats were firstly likely domesticated once, and that was in the Fertile Crescent before migrating with humans around the world. So humans migrated and we took cats with us. So we clearly very much do love cats. And um, I, I also wanted to just briefly bring up another study that was recently published. Um, so. Chris, you're a cat person. You've got a cat, so you probably have feelings about this. But um... oh, I do like dogs. Well, let me just be clear. I like I like both <laughs> dogs and cats. I have I have um, you know had both of them at various points of time. Just happen to have a cat at the moment. So yeah. it's a lifestyle, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they're not as needy as well. Um, <laughs> so you, you've probably heard of the the idea of you know pet your stress away sort of events yeah. and and these sort of interventions, I guess that bring dogs into work mostly these events they are focusing or featuring dogs um, and they definitely have proven benefits so you know, animal assistant interventions where you you know relieve stress by playing with dogs and puppy therapy it's adorable um, but new research from university uh, sorry new research from washington state university shows that more people might be benefiting if we add cats to that as well and interestingly highly emotional people were found to be highly drawn to felines or cats so yeah, maybe what are you saying there what are you saying <laughs> you're a highly emotional person <laughs> uh, i'll take that as a compliment i think <laughs> i mean it's very very hard to like sort of quantitatively study emotion but um so i guess i guess a, a cat can maybe, I suppose, saying it will calm you down, perhaps. Um, whereas, you know, a dog, if you're excitable and a dog is excitable, then it's, you're just going to feed off each other. Yeah, well, there's the, this kind of perception that dogs exist to please people. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas cats are, I guess, a little bit more unpredictable. Mm. Um, so I, I think, uh, anecdotally at least, um, these researchers sort of got the perception that people or some people find cats a little bit more difficult to be around and um cat people are very different to dog people but clearly there are people who are both like you That's not That's not <laughs> um but these researchers surveyed 1400 university students and staff across 20 different universities and they saw that you know when they have both dogs and cats some people just sort of go in and make an immediate beeline for the cats and other people for the dogs um and it was interesting that one, 
like many people were interested in interacting with the cats, but also um, thinking about why they made their choices. There seemed to be a little bit of a link between, um, you know, the kinds of people and personality. So it's just quite interesting. It's only a preliminary study, but, um, you know, thinking about the fact that maybe we should be having like pet your cat days and bring your cat to work days as well, because it does seem to help at least some people reduce their stress levels. So adding cats might help us sort of broaden the audience a little bit more for the people who are dog, uh, not dog people. <laughs> you heard it first here on Lost in Science, bring your cat to work and see what happens. <laughs> Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. All right, so you listen to Lost in Science. Uh, now, you might not know, but I grew up in Bundaberg, and as a child, I remember there being a lot of cane beetles around. You familiar with cane beetles, Katrina? I'm definitely familiar with cane beetles and the idea that we took we used cane toads to get rid of them. Yeah, that didn't work so well, although I have seen <laughs> cane toads eating cane beetles, so like it can perhaps happen. Um, yeah, so the cane beetles are these kind of, I don't know, these large brown beetles. And so they'd come around in big numbers, but occasionally you would see these shiny kind of metallic looking beetles. Uh, and they were the Christmas beetles. And they were a lot, you know, seemed to be a lot more special. Um, and I think a lot of people there are very special because they come around at Christmas time in particular. And as I said, they're kind of shiny, they're pretty. Um, I thought they were maybe just different, you know, related to the cane beetles. They're just kind of the special ones, but, um, they are kind of distantly related. They, um, they are both members of the scarab family, but there's something like 30,000 species in that family. So that's a lot that closely related. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, the Christmas beetles, they are, I guess, known primarily for coming out around Christmas time, sort of November, December, and that's why they get their name as well as their appearance. Um, they are, and unlike the introduced pest that is the cane beetle, they are a Australian uh, native species. Um, the genus is, I'm going to try and say this, Anoplognathus, Anoplognathus, Anoplognathus. I don't know how you pronounce that. I wouldn't know how to pronounce it either, so it sounds fine to me. <laughs> so we'll call them Christmas beetles. Um, there's something like 35 different species of Christmas beetle. Um, and Anoplognathus pallidicollis um, is the perhaps the best known species. It's kind of the, the most kind of shiny metallic one. Um, but there are other species of different colors and things. Um, but yeah, they're kind of shiny. They're kind of iridescent. And a word that I learned by looking up about this, specular as well. And specular is when it kind of reflects light back at you like a mirror. 
Um, and these combined to give this more this sort of metallic appearance. Now, iridescence, I couldn't find the mechanism of the iridescence, um, particularly for Christmas beetles, but in nature, iridescence often comes about when you have kind of multiple translucent layers where, say, from different angles, light from different wavelengths will constructively or destructively interfere, and so you'll see different colours from different angles, and that's where the iridescence comes from. Yeah, what about the um, specular, did you say? Yeah, specularity. Yeah, I don't know. Um, maybe it's just kind of really smooth, or maybe yeah. there's um, something to a different layers gives that kind of mirror aspect as well. I'm not really sure how that yeah. works. Like I said, well, smooth the, surfaces tend to be mirrored, like you know, whether it's glass or like water can be reflected yeah. if it's smooth enough. Hmm. But oh, look, I don't know. But like, they're very pretty beetles. Is mm, what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and a lot of people do think of them fondly, and as a result of people, I guess, thinking about them, being quite fond of these things, um, they have noticed a change, it seems. Um, there is anecdotally reports of a decline in numbers of these Christmas beetles. Um, now, anecdote, anecdotes are not data, as our famous <laughs> saying says. Um, we have a bit more than that. There are, like, for instance, reports, news reports from early the 20th century that discuss huge numbers um, drowning in Sydney Harbour, you know, with tree oh branches gosh. bending under the weight of the beetles. Oh, wow, um, like so many on a branch. that oh, Yeah, wow. kind of plague proportions almost. And that <clears throat> that clearly isn't observed today. Mm. Um, but really we need some actual data. Uh, and Associate Professor Tanya Latte from Sydney University is trying to get some data. Um, she's running a citizen science project um, called the Christmas Beetle Count. So how this works, they're asking people to download an app called iNaturalist. And when you see what you think is a Christmas beetle, you take a picture of it. Um, the app itself has some artificial intelligence that can help identify the beetle, make sure it is actually a Christmas beetle, and then record the, the picture and the location. Um, they use the, the machine learning and artificial intelligence so that they um, don't have to send scientists out to every, every sighting to verify it. But yeah, it's the idea is that with enough people doing this, we get some data on where these beetles are and how many are being seen, ideally. Yeah, um, yeah and it is... Uh, apparently this project has been going for a couple of years. This is the second year, um, and they're hoping they'll get some really good numbers this year. But I guess you really need to track it over a, over a few years because, you know, otherwise you are, I suppose, still relying on, I guess, reports of what you think it was in the past. Um, and like studies have shown, there's a similar kind of study I saw that was look, using Twitter to try and get some idea of changes in the weather, sort of trying to work out if you can detect <laughs> climate change for what people are talking about on Twitter. Mm. So people say, oh, it's a particularly hot day or it's a particularly cold day. And what they found is that people mostly compare the weather to the year before uh, rather than having long memories of gradual changes in trends. So really our memories for, I guess, for things like beetle numbers aren't that reliable. And so we need kind of a few years of actual data so that we can tell what's going on yeah well sometimes i'm like what what was the weather last week like let alone exactly, exactly. <laughs> long term well especially if you live in melbourne you're probably what was oh, weather yeah. this morning yeah i don't know who knows um but yeah so they're trying to find out whether there is actually a population decline um there are some i guess some suspects for what may be causing a decline if there is one the perhaps most obvious one is habitat lost um because so these beetles the adults feed on eucalypt leaves 
um, uh, and the but the larvae, which are kind of crescent shaped, they kind of curl up into a crescent shape. Yes, they feed on the roots of grasses, and being a, a native species, that would be primarily native grasses that we're looking at here. So, um, when you think about, say, a large urban area like Sydney or, or Brisbane or Melbourne, then you're going to have, I guess, few, less of this native grassland uh, yeah. in the suburbs where people are living. And so it does no surprise that you would then get um, fewer Christmas people being seen. And in fact, in some parts of the country, it seems that there is actually not a decline. In some parts of the country, there seems to be a bit of a boom in numbers, reportedly. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Queensland government website actually lists Christmas beetles as a pest species for eucalypt plantations. And the Queensland Museum, on their information page about the Christmas beetles, talks about how, um, you know, with an increase in farming and clearing, there has been um, more grassland created. And so you get large numbers of beetles and also you get, you know, small numbers of trees, perhaps. And so those trees that do exist are vulnerable to the adult beetles feeding on them. Right. So it's decimating those crops. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that seems to be only the case though in, I guess, yeah, in the the rural areas. Whereas in Brisbane, they are also reporting, um, you know, anecdotally a decline in Christmas beetle numbers. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that does kind of strongly support the habitat loss idea. But you know, generally there is uh, people observing what seems to be a decline in insect populations of various, many, many different species around the world. Mm. And so the concern is that maybe there is something else going on as well that we need to be aware of. Um, one thing that people often point to perhaps is the use of pesticides or chemicals. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and so the I mentioned that the, the Christmas beetle um, larvae kind of curl up in a crescent shape. They're also often called curl grubs. And there are a number of different um, beetle species that have curl grubs as their larvae. And many of them are introduced pests in Australia. Like one of them is actually the Argentinian lawn beetle, which is another kind of scarab, I believe, um, can look a little bit like a Christmas beetle, but a smaller version thereof. And um, yeah, as the name suggests, it's an introduced pest in garden lawns. So it's about um, telling the difference between, you know, this one's native and good and then this one's a pest. That's right. Or as, you know, it's been suggested, maybe if you find some curl grubs, as they're known, um, don't automatically reach for the insecticides because maybe it is a native species and maybe that's part of the problem. But look, um, you know, I guess before we, we find out whether what's causing the decline, we have to either find out whether there is a decline, which is where the Citizen Science Project comes in. So look, if you want to get involved... Um, then you can download the iNaturalist app. It's called that just a letter I and then the word naturalist. Um, and yeah, report any Christmas beetles that you find. And hopefully we can get to the bottom of this um, Christmas beetle mystery with the help of a few citizen scientists. Mm, citizen science is so powerful. Like I know in Sears Victoria, I've got the bogon moth tracker because bogon moths are another insect that have been declining mm. recently. Um, but yeah, like you know, all of that information captured in a photo, like where you saw it, the time you saw it and, and like what it was. I think that's yeah. so, so powerful. And we kind of sometimes don't think about it so much, like how powerful photos are, like in citizen science. Well, it's also, I guess, the, the, the amount of data that's needed for this kind of research as well. So you talked about cicadas earlier and, you know, how you haven't noticed as many cicadas around much lately. Now, many cicadas have... I guess take many years to mature and they often come in in waves in cycles 
over several years. And so you can get big differences from year to year by, by purely natural causes. But, you know, unless you actually track these things with the data, you don't know whether it is this kind of year to year shift or whether there is a long term trend. Um, and, you know, these things are widely distributed. You can't just set up one little kind of plot somewhere and track the number of beetles or cicadas or insects in that one little plot you need to do it over a larger area yeah well and like yeah, as you said with the beetles it's very different in queensland even in the rural versus urban areas exactly yeah so yeah you do need a lot of people looking at a lot of insects to get this real data so yeah hopefully um because this is a much loved insect um hopefully this will get some answers and yeah give us some clues to what's going on with all the other insects in the world And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.